morning, church family. Please forgive my raspy voice. Um, you know, just like everybody else. Allergies in Austin is a thing, or sickness is a thing. I don't know. I hear down here in the South, everybody blames everything on allergies, so we're going to blame it on allergies. So that's what we have. Um, name is Branziski, the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. And we want to let you know that our heartbeat is to be a church that is simply about Jesus. And we do everything here to help people to meet, know, and follow him because it's all about him. And that's why we're in this series going through the book and letter of Revelation. And we're just going to kind of like jump right into it this morning. But before we do, I want to remind us again and again and again that Revelation is actually a beautiful letter. It's not one that's meant to intimidate. It's not one that's meant to cause fear. It's not one to cause anxiety. It's actually one meant to really bring us a lot of assurance and peace and encouragement in our hearts. It's not a letter that's there to give us a map of prediction and speculation. But as Eugene Peterson tells us that Revelation is more about perception. It's about seeing, right? So that way we can make sense of our present realities in view of what is unseen. And so this is more about how do we live as a faithful disciple in our culture, in our time, right now. This is not a future-telling book where you take it with you to watch CNN Fox, ABC, whatever news channel it is in order to predict the end of all things. This is about discipleship. This is about being faithful to Jesus. But if we were to strip it all back, like it says immediately in Revelation 1.1, this is about a revealing of Jesus Christ. It's about God pulling back the curtain, allowing the church to see or to perceive the Son of Man in his glorified state. The balance between his humanity and his divinity now as he ascended in heaven. The context of Revelation is absolutely important. John, the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's been exiled on the island of Patmos because he has refused to throw some incense onto a fire in order to worship Caesar because worshiping Caesar was a big deal in the Roman Empire. It was a big deal in Asia Minor, and we're going to see that in just a little bit. And he refused to do it. It didn't matter if it was, could have just been a small thing. He did not want to compromise his loyalty to Jesus. And so he was exiled for that reason. In the churches in Asia Minor at this time, anywhere between 90 AD to 96 AD, was under extreme persecution, constant threat. I mean, lives were being lost, murders, executions, businesses, families ruined, all the things that you would think of. And imagine being in a church at that time. Just imagine like hearing about the kingdom of God and how the cross was the means of salvation and the empty tomb, the resurrection is like the conquering over death and the grave and the kingdom is supposed to be here and Jesus is the king of kings. He ascended to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand, going to send the Holy Spirit and now we're under extreme persecution. How would you feel as a follower of Jesus in the second generation of Christianity? Would you have some legitimate questions? What is this all about? Is this even real? What did I give myself to? Is it worth losing my family? Is it worth losing my livelihood for? These are important questions because that is the context of this letter. And quite frankly, as we look at culture and we understand the trajectory of human history, we know that this time is coming. There's going to be greater and greater and greater pressure on the church of Jesus Christ. 
And we in America, we've been quite fortunate for some time. And we'll probably still be fortunate for some more time. Where we're not going to face the loss of our family and execution. We're not going to be burnt at the stake per se in America. But guess what? There are churches across the world that are. There are more martyrs today than ever before. Why doesn't the news talk about it? Just research what's happening in the churches in the Middle East, what's happening in the churches in Africa. They're blowing up, they're growing, there's great revival. And at the same time, there's mass persecution on the Christians. This is the context of this letter. And we read this in America where we're feeling pretty comfortable as we come and we kind of have this little like consumer-esque Christianity where it's kind of me and Jesus. And as we look at this letter, like we got to ask ourselves the question, like how would we respond if all of a sudden we were in John's shoes on this island and also we heard this voice behind us. It was a voice that sounded familiar but altogether different and you turn around. And what you see is this radiant image of one whom you know, but yet he's absolutely glorified. Eyes of fire, feet burnished bronze, hair that's white that talks about eternal and ageless and all-knowing. A golden sash across his chest that declares that it is finished. I am the king. A double-edged sword coming out of his mouth that is enough to cut and to proclaim condemnation if you are not in Christ Jesus. And at the same time, it is sharp enough like a medical scalpel to heal. And John, who we know reclined on Jesus in the Last Supper, sees him like this and cannot help but fall as though dead. What would it be like, church, if we understood who Jesus was? What would it be like if the Lord stirred us up with an image of who he is? And I believe that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to stir us up. He wants to stir up the church. And that's exactly now what we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks as we're going to journey through the letters and the messages that are given to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This is absolutely important. And this is going to take some time, right? So if I had this mapped out, we were going to go through seven churches in three Sundays, which meant that today I was going to go through two of them but we're only going to go through one. So this might take some time because it is that important. Now, as we move into this, okay, this is where all of a sudden, like if you've been like in church world for some time and if you ever like dare to study Revelation, you know that there is an endless amount of timelines that people have created, right? And I got some pictures on here. I was like, these are kind of like my favorite type of timelines that are there. Can we show those real quick? All right, there we go. You look at this and you're like, that's every reason why I don't study this letter. Right? You're like, what in the world? And then you're going, who has the time? Right? But it's like you're looking at this and it's somebody trying to piece together all of the different dispensations and symbols and trying to mark it all out and try to figure out how all of this is going to unfold as we move in a chronological order to the end of all things. Now, look, at we've got some other iterations of different timelines that we have. We have this one, then we have another one, and then I believe I got one more that's in there. That one's a little bit more clear, okay? But, like, these are great study aids, but... 
What ends up happening with this is this creates a lot of confusion. And unbeknownst to us, it actually starts to put us a little bit in the, the position of wanting to speculate. Who's what, when, and where, and how is this all going to be? So I wanted to share with you the timeline to end all timelines. This is developed and adapted from Dr. Scott McKnight. And so I want to share with you what I believe is a simple timeline that will help you to make sense of what was, what is, and what will be when it comes to understanding Revelation. And so I'm going to try my best to draw this out, okay? So we start here with creation. And we lose my slide. I don't know if this is going to work. Creation, New Jerusalem. <laughs> Guys, there's more to it, okay? <laughs> that would have been amazing. Right? There it is. <laughs> right? No. But like this, this is meant to just to show you, this, this is the, the trajectory of human history, right? And so then if we're going to think about this from just going a vertical axis now, we're going to say this is the lamb. So I can't touch my iPad, so that's why my penmanship is really, really bad. Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay. So if you were to make a vertical axis, on top is the lamb. Because this is going to be the imagery that we're going to see about Jesus. He's the lamb, the lamb who was slain. And on the bottom of, of, this, of the vertical axis is the dragon. And the dragon represents the devil. Okay? And so it, if we were just to kind of move up a little bit, we can say like this, these are emperors and kingdoms. Yep, yeah, I know. Kingdoms. And, and it's just like any, any kingdom, like Rome, all of the time, like Hitler and all these things and governing powers and stuff like that. Like those are underneath the influence of the dragon. And this is coming up in also, and I'll make this one clear. Babylon. That's how I remember how to spell Babylon. Okay? Babylon, which is like the kingdom of darkness represented or manifested on earth. Okay? Now below, it, coming down from the land would be like faithful witnesses. You know, martyrs. Disciples. And then here we have church. Okay? So the reason why I love this timeline is because this just helps us go, what is going on on the other side of the curtain? There is a cosmic spiritual battle happening between the lamb and the dragon. And they're both using people, right? They both have people. We're the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. The dragon is manipulating and using and seducing powers and authorities and economics and all the things to come against the church. And he does that through what we would see in a symbolic image of Babylon. And so the same thing with the lamb. The lamb has rescued people to which we saw in Revelation 5. Like he, he made us a kingdom. Look at that, Revelation 1.5, and he made us a kingdom of priests. That's who we are. And so the vehicle that God uses on earth to, to combat Babylon is the church. 
So if we were to go, what's happening in human history in the world? What was, what is, and will be is constantly this. That's all you need to know. Okay? And that's why I love this simple timeline. Because when we start to read about these churches, we have to try to find ourselves in the midst of this. Because these seven churches that we're going to read about in Asia Minor are not just seven symbolic images of different church ages that are going to happen until Jesus comes back. No, they are seven historical specifically located churches, and because the number seven is a symbolic image that tells us that it's complete or whole, these seven churches represent church for all time. So we have to understand what's happening. If you want to make sense of what's going on in this world, you have to understand that the dragon is using people, systems, Power structures, economics, education, music, culture, everything and anything to use it to come against not just the church, but primarily against the Lamb. And God sent us as ambassadors, as sheep amongst wolves, to continue to tell people about how the lamb is victorious and how they can be freed from the bondage of the dragon. You want to know what's happening in this world right now? You want to understand why culture is what it is? That's why. And you want to know what your role is in this world as a church, as an individual? This. So now we come into this question for us, what does this look like as a church? How do we remain faithful as a church of Christ's followers today and tomorrow and as long as the Lord has us here? Now before we get into the specific context of these seven churches, I need to lay down some principles, some foundational truths that will help us to build off of for us to understand what the heart and the intention is in these letters, okay? First foundational truth, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Every message to every church isn't about the church. It's addressed to the church, but it's primarily about Jesus because the church is to reflect Jesus. It's to embody Jesus. The churches embody Jesus' name. It's all about him. That's why we started with two weeks of looking at chapter one. Revelation is the revealing of Jesus. It's not the revealing of the goodness of a church. It's the revealing of Jesus. And if you were to go down to verse four and five of chapter one, he's the firstborn of the dead. He's the faithful witness. He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. He's the one who loves us. He's the one who set us free by his blood. He's the one. And the first revelation or the first apocalypse that we get is John's image of the Son of Man. And out of that image flows these messages because it's all about him. If it's all about him, church, listen, this means that the church is his. And that means he can ask whatever he wants of the church. Whenever he wants. It's his. The church is his body. 
So every church that professes faith in Jesus has been bought with by his blood. He's the head of this church. He's sovereign over the church. And he alone is worthy to receive glory and honor within the church. Like when we worship, friends, when we worship, we are not singing out of like an agreement or out of like, man, I really like the songs they played. And so I'm going to sing. If that's it, that's idolatry. When we worship, it, we're worshiping him who alone is worthy. We need to remind ourselves of that because this image of Jesus is one where he is walking in the midst of this lampstands, which means he is ever present right now in our midst. Which leads me to foundational truth two. He's here. And he sees and he knows He's not distant. He's not far off. You can't hide from him. His eye, like John even said, he's like, his eyes are like fire. It's going to see through every facade. He's going to see your motivations and what's really behind all things. He is in the midst of it all. He sees all. He's not far off, but he's close and personal. He's absolutely aware of everything we will face and everything we are and everything we will do as a church. And yet, the amazing thing is, even though he knows and he sees, he still cares deeply and loves us. Does that shock you? Like, like, I feel that tension. I'm like, Lord, you're entrusting th- this t- to us? Like, we're, we're on the front line? You're like, really? <laughs> we're petty. We're, we're sinful. And we're hypocrites. And, and I know when I was singing, I was maybe thinking of this. And, and maybe even when I was raising my hands, I didn't realize my thoughts drifted into what I was going to eat later. Wait, maybe I shouldn't have my hands up. Right? Like, God, How? But that's the beauty of it all. Because he's so near and sees everything, that makes him all the more glorious that he loves. So this leads us to foundational truth number three. The church is not the light. The church is simply the vehicle to display the light. The church is called a lamp stand. Think of an oil lamp. That lamp needs a few things. It needs oil, it needs a wick, and it needs someone from the outside to light that wick. The church is just the container whom the Holy Spirit then pours himself into to which we get ignited. And since he's the high priest, the symbolic image of the high priest in the Old Testament, they were the ones responsible for trimming the wicks, for keeping the lamp lit. We are just the vehicle. It's not about our goodness. It's not about our work. It's not about our effort. It's about Jesus. And so we as a church, we're not supposed to put the light that he starts, that he ignites under a bowl, but rather we're supposed to let that light radiate and shine out to a lost and dying world. The church is not flawless. I didn't know if you knew that. So, like, change your expectations of what you expect to find in a church. The church is just a vehicle 
of the, the Holy Spirit that's been lit up by the flame of the Holy Spirit to show off the glory of Jesus. Not the goodness of the church. And once you start to think that the church is the light and not Jesus is the light, you're going to be vastly disappointed with the church. Jesus is the light. Foundational truth number four. I'm going to go through this one real quick. The seven churches, I already said this, are historical churches that represent all churches for all time. They are not seven epics, seven eras, seven iterations. They are literally seven churches. Now, I need to build a backdrop. And this will help, okay? At the time when this letter was written, the people of Asia Minor had been under Roman rule for two centuries. When Rome first came into the region, it absolutely impoverished the region, which led to a lot of revolts, which is normal. And so what would happen was those who in Asia Minor who chose to remain loyal to Rome, Rome decided that I'm gonna, we're going to exempt them from tax locally and through the Roman government forever. And if you opposed Rome, you would be treated as such. So what ended up happening was people took advantage of the prosperity that Rome was offering in order to buy their allegiance. If you say yes, we will allow you to live tax-free. How many of you would be tempted? Don't answer, right? And so they looked at all the things that Rome would bring. They're like roads and education and all this stuff. They're like, Pax Romana, great deal amazing thing and then there was this patronage system that would happen like this is where all of a sudden Asia Minor started asking Rome hey can we build a worship to the goddess Roma can we build a temple to Artemis which now we know in Ephesus the temple of Diana which is one of the seventh wonders of the world they couldn't do that on their own they had to get permission from Rome and only way Rome would say yes is if they've proven themselves absolutely loyal to Rome. And so Ephesus, as we're going to look this morning, were approved four times in their history up to this time to build four specific temples to four different emperors. And so to be part of, let's just say, the... Um, Chamber of Commerce, or what's that business? I can't remember. All those things that you just said, right? You're going to hear this almost every week. It was the guild. In order to be part of the guild, you had to be faithful to worshiping Caesar as Lord. And if you weren't part of the guild, they would boycott you. Now put yourself in the shoes of a Christian in that moment. You're trying to start a business, provide for a young family. Well, if I don't worship Caesar, I'm going to be treated as an outcast, as a, someone who's actually acting out in treason. And that's what happened. These churches became impoverished because they said no. And so there was open boycotting to it. And when Christians, like, started, like, when people started to become Christians, it started to affect the economy. Read Acts 20. When Paul, I think it's Acts 20 or Acts 17, when Paul was, like, preaching in Ephesus, all of a sudden people stopped buying little Diana, like, souvenirs. And it affected the in industry so much that they wanted to execute Paul. 
In fact, there's a Roman historian, Pliny, who said that once we persecuted the Christians, business picked back up. This is the culture that all of these seven churches were part of. And specifically in Ephesus, it was the fourth largest city in Rome. It was an urban center. It was the capital of Asia Minor. It had the wealth of multiple nations, the seventh wonder of the world, full of idolatry, full, full of pagantry. It was like New York City. I mean, material wealth, consumerism, all the things, everything you can think of is right there. It was a large metropolis. Massive. This city was so influential that Paul dedicated two years of his ministry there on purpose. The longest post, outpost he stayed at. It was a church that was developed and taught by massive pillars of the church. Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, Timothy, and then even John. They were all the pastors. They were a legacy church. They were the church to model after. Like if you wanted to go to a church building conference and read the books of five principles and how to grow a massive church, Ephesus is your church. Like that was this church. Second generation church now at this time of this letter. And it seems that it, they're like living off of the history of what once was. On the outside, this church looks great. But what we're going to discover is that even though externally they looked amazing, internally they were cold and distant. So let's start by looking at this church. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one, okay, the one. Who's the one? Talk to me. Who's the one? Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, I know, like, we read that, we're like, ah, oh, seven stars, okay. But I want to show you something that was part of their everyday life. I want, well, I want you to see this image. That is Domitian's son. Domitian was the emperor at this time, and they made a coin after his son. And if you notice, there's how many stars? Seven. Who's in control of the universe? What was Rome declaring? Oh, the emperors do. Oh, really, was it really Rome that was declaring that? Or was it the dragon seducing and manipulating Rome to build Babylon to come against the church? You see why that timeline's important. Jesus now declares, I hold the seven stars. And yes, there's a, a mixed uh, symbolism here because the, the stars represent angels. But here it's talking about, I control the cosmos. I created everything. He does not control anything. He's a phony. He's an imitator. He's a puppet, right? But Rome saw this all the time. So when we look at this, says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, I, me, I'm walking amongst you. Like I'm walking amongst the seven golden lampstands. Like, you got to imagine how that would have felt hearing that. 
Like I'm under persecution, I'm under pressure, and all of a sudden I'm hearing this beautiful act of assurance from the Son of Man. I'm with you, I'm there for you, I see you, I'm accessible to you, I know everything that's happening. I alone and sovereign, not these guys. These guys are puppets. This is the beauty of this revelation. It's pulling back for the church to go, oh, I know who's in control of really who's in control. The kingdom of darkness is nothing but a shadow. The dragon is throwing an eternal temper tantrum, hating Jesus with his attention focused on the church. He holds the stars. He walks amongst the churches. This should give a real deep sense of peace and assurance. And at the same time, church, this is the part where God, I believe, was stirring up the church in Ephesus, and it ought to stir us up too. Because he's in the midst of the churches, not only should that give us assurance, that should stir us up to great passion and fervency because we will be held accountable for our lampstand. How did we, as Austin Oaks Church, live? How did we follow Jesus? Now, as a church, that's a collection of individuals who are following Jesus. So take that personally. How am I living? He sees how I'm living, and he sees how we're living as a church. And then he comes in and he goes, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. He's, he's affirming them. He's encouraging them. He's like, guys, awesome. You've worked hard. Thank you. I know your labor, your diligence, you go after it. And I know your endurance, like people are coming against you. You're being persecuted, beaten, killed, and you're losing your livelihoods. And you're standing up against them and you haven't grown weary. I love that. Way to go. They're diligent to the core. I mean, this was a church that had multiple programs happening in its church, an amazing small group ministry. They had great outreach to the city and probably to the world. And they had an amazing core of volunteers and they had so many Bible studies where so many people knew the doctrine inside and out. They took Paul's warning in Ephesus tw- or in Acts 20, hey, when I leave, there's going to be wolves that are coming amongst you, so make sure you guard the flock. And even John taught them in 1 John, Test the spirits because there's going to be antichrist coming in. Oh, they did that and they're doing that with great accuracy. To the degree Jesus is like, awesome job. Guys, I love it. Way to go. They're not allowing culture to shape them. They're allowing scriptures to shape them. And they're facing all of the things that are coming at them. And then he says, you cannot tolerate evil people. And this is actually connecting all the way down to verse 6 about these Nicolaitans, which you're going to hear a few times. Nobody really knows who they are. There's, there's guesses, but essentially we know what the practice of the Nicolaitans were. They were Gnostics. They were talking about they had a secret spiritual wisdom. They took some things of scripture, added to it, and said, that's why we can engage in sin because we know these things. And so they took their special spiritual knowledge to excuse their sexual immorality and their idolatry. And they were phonies in the church. And Jesus says, Jesus says, 
I hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. He doesn't say, I hate them. I hate the practice. And you guys do too. And I can imagine in the room, okay, you get a letter as a persecuted church, John, your loved pastor of so many years, is exiled. All of a sudden you get this letter, and John tells him, writes in this letter like, hey, this message I'm giving you isn't actually for me, it's from Jesus himself. And he's saying, good job, great work, great labor, keep persevering. And I can imagine people in the church going, yeah. And then the guy who's reading it sees this next letter right here. <laughs> oh, man, this letter right there, this word right here. But, and I, and I can imagine him reading it going like, oh. reading ahead, this is me just speculating, even though I say it, it's not speculating. And I can read like him going, do I really want to say this? But I have this against you. The air leaves the room. Since Jesus walks amongst the church and he sees and he knows, he loves. He loves so much that he has to correct. Love requires discipline. Love requires correction. We're sinful. We can deviate from the course, right? And so this isn't meant to shame them or to guilt them. This is meant out of love to, course, correct them. And he's like, but I have this against you. And then he just drops this bomb on him. He's like, you have abandoned. I mean, oh. Those of you who are married, how would you feel if your spouse came to you at 5 p.m. today and said, I feel like you've abandoned our love. Oh, okay, what time's the Pro Bowl on? Like, well, would that not take the wind out of your sails? You might even be like, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I'm here. We talk. We do stuff together. That's great, yeah. But the heart, the motivation, the why... You've abandoned it. And this word abandoned isn't like an accidental. Like, where did it, where, I lost it. Where did it go? I don't, I don't know where it went to. It's this idea of like carelessness. It, it was an intentional like, yeah, 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 I know. Really, like connecting with you, Jesus, this is important. I'll come back to it later. So I put it down over here. But I got to really serve. I got to really do this. I got to focus on these things. And the more and more you do that, the more and more you actually disregard this and you don't even realize that it, you have drifted from it to the point that it's actually abandonment. It is possible to look like in an amazing church on the outside and have your heart completely disconnected from loving Jesus on the inside. And that should wake us up. He comes in and he says this, and it shouldn't be causing us to have great fear. It should actually cause us to be like, oh my goodness, Jesus, what happened? Because I want us to think about it this way, okay? Jesus is a master gardener. He's a master gardener. Every garden, even though the garden might look absolutely stunning and absolutely amazing, a garden needs constant work. Constant attention, constant nurturing, constant weeding, constant pruning, right? It might have this appearance that's there. You'd be like, oh my goodness, look at that. But if someone were to leave that alone, what would happen? 
And so when we hear this phrase where Jesus is like, you abandoned your first love, don't listen to the enemy who wants to make you feel full of guilt and shame all of a sudden. You're like, oh my goodness, I know I didn't do enough. I know I shouldn't do this. I gotta try hard. I gotta try. It's like, no, he's pruning you. He knows that you can't in of yourself. And he knows that sometimes we forget what it's all about. He knows that our motives kind of get confused at moments. He's doing this because he loves us. John told them in 1 John chapter 4 that there is no fear in love. Friends, listen, church, listen. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And those who fear have not yet been perfected in love. Which means you yet do not know the love of Christ. So when Jesus comes in and he starts to convict you. And starting to challenge you and stir you up. Listen, he's doing it because he loves you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. A first love is a love of attention. It's a love of eagerness. It's a love that seeks to please the one you desire. Over and over in scripture, we are told that like, the relationship that we have with God is like a bride to a bridegroom. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, he's, he's asking Israel like, where is the devotion of your youth when you first loved me? And in verse 5, he's like, what have I done to cause you to go after all of these other lovers? This is the picture. And what I want us to understand is that our relationship with Jesus is a lot like a potted plant. So just go with me. If you take that relationship and that pot of plants you get is beautiful, it's awesome, it's full of green, and you just leave it on your coffee table and you do nothing with it, you abandon it, that's what happens. Abide in me. Remain in my love. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? When you abandon your first love, when you abandon Jesus as your first love, you actually can't love people the way you ought. You actually can't be a church that looks like the church that Jesus bought. Your walk with the Lord becomes about you and what you need, when you need it, and how you need it. You won't look sacrificial. You will serve when it's convenient. And you're really okay with external things like, hey, look at me. Look at, I'm doing well. I'm doing great. Look, look, look. God, how can you say? Like Jesus even said this, like, there are going to be come that some, come, some that come to me and say, Jesus, did we not do this in your name? And Jesus said, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. What, what is that word? No. It's the word that is the same thing all the way back in Genesis when it said that Adam knew Eve. You know where I'm going. Like, like, that's a relationship. I never knew you. So here's the thing I want to challenge us with. What I believe Jesus wants to stir us up with is this question. Are you more in love with the idea 
of loving Jesus? Or are you in love with Jesus? Are you in love with the idea of loving Jesus? Or are you in love with Jesus? Do you love to talk about God but not talk to God? Do you love to talk about church but fail to be the church? Are you too busy to pray? Too busy to be in the Word? What about confession? Yeah, yeah, I know I did wrong. I know I did wrong. Sure, you can confess, but what we are called to is repentance. And if you're in love with the idea of loving Jesus, you'll just confess but not repent. Because if you love Jesus, you want to make sure that that relationship is right. And repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind, a different direction, an effort empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life pleasing to the Lord. And that's why Paul, or not Paul, John goes on, he says, listen, this is why Jesus is so good. He just tells them, he's like, remember. He gives them the solution. Remember. Remember how far you've fallen. When did you first fall in love with Jesus? If you can't answer that question, you really need to find out why. When did you first fall in love with Jesus? It has to be when you first recognize the cross for what it is. Because that's when we first understand and see the depths of the love of Christ. Revelation 1.5. To the one who loves us, who has freed us by his blood. He died because he loved. While we were enemies, he died. And when you purely see the cross the first time and you recognize, you're like, I don't deserve this. Oh my goodness. I was a rebel, I, I neglected you, I cursed at you, I did say, how can you love me? How, that makes no sense that you would die for me. Why would you do that? And then the only response you can have is a little bit like Thomas who said, my Lord and my God. Remember the heights you have fallen. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Thank you, Jesus that you are the atoning sacrifice for my sins. Thank you that you made a way when there was no way. Thank you that you did for me what I could never do for myself. Thank you for loving me when I was an enemy. And that's why then it leads into repent. Once you remember this, then you have the appropriate motivation to repent. Don't just confess it. Repent. Some of you in this room, you're like, oh my goodness, I have drifted from the love of Jesus. And you're feeling some guilt. You're feeling some conviction. That's okay. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. But go to the cross. Remember the motivation for why he went there. It wasn't to guilt you or to condemn you. It was to free you and to save you. Repent. Change the way you think about life. Change the way you see this. Don't neglect the relationship. And then he tells us, 
do what you did at first. When you first started walking with Jesus, when you first started following Jesus, what did you do? What did you do? I remember when I first started following Jesus, I, of course, I was in college, and so I didn't have a whole lot of responsibilities. I would skip class, not work, student loans, all the types of things, and I would just spend hours upon hours upon hours in the Word, loving it. And I would talk to anybody who was breathing about Jesus. I would corner them, in, I would pin them in a room, maybe like, you're going to say yes to Jesus. I don't care. Like, I mean, it was just like I was on fire for the Lord. And then somewhere along the line, I got older and more sophisticated. And I found myself saying, I'll get to it later. I'll get to it later. I'll get to it later. And then the pattern happens. You don't. And then you find it in your heart, I miss you, Lord. I miss you. That's the Holy Spirit. Seek his face. What did you do at first? That's what he's calling us back into. So church, we're going to move into a time of communion. Good night. Let's get this on your notes. We're going to move into a time of communion. And I want to ask three questions. This is time for you to reflect. Okay? And the reflection, the questions are these. Is your love for Jesus growing cold? Is the trend arrow going down or up? And here's the reality. That neglecting of that relationship or the carelessness, Jesus has a word for it and you just got to take it at face value. Abandoning that love. Sounds harsh. But he can say that because it's, it's against the lover of our souls and the only one who's truly worthy of our love. Is your love growing cold? The second question that you really need to answer is, are you more in love with the idea of loving Jesus than actually loving Jesus? It's kind of like when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you diligently study the scriptures. They love the idea of it, but you've missed me. If we just love the idea, we will church hop. Oh, did I just step on some toes? Like we, if you love the idea, you'll church hop until you find the church that fits every need that you want. When the heat comes and persecution comes, you will walk away. But if you love Jesus, you will rejoice in suffering, endure persecution. Third question. Point blank. And I want you to be honest. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I'm feeling a need just to lean into two things. And so just give me a, a moment here. First, there are some in this room who maybe you have convinced yourself that you do love Jesus by just being religious on the outside. You've done the church things, you can say the churchy things and all of that stuff, and you thought maybe by being good enough, been baptized, I've done this, I've taken communion, all the kind of things, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. 
And you're just doing it to appease Jesus. Almost like, check, I'm good. I, I'm going to heaven. I'm good, check. He wants your heart. So like, if, if he doesn't have your heart, you really got to ask this question. Do you, do you love Jesus? The second thing I'm feeling the need to lean into is some of you are feeling right now a little bit guilty. You're feeling some shame. And I, and I'm just, it's coming to my mind, Peter, when Jesus met him after the resurrection, Peter denied Jesus after he said he wouldn't. Maybe when you were following Jesus around, you're like, I will, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. I'm for you. I love you. Woo! Everything. And the next thing you know, life happened. And maybe you're at that spot where you abandoned the love. I love what Jesus did to Peter. Very familiar context. He brings him in and he goes, Peter, do you love me more than these? Speaking to fish in his vocation. Do you, do you love me more than whatever the world can do for you? Do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, I, I love you. You know this. And second time, Jesus, do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, I, I love you. And the third time, Peter, do you, do you love me? And Peter moved. He's like, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Did Jesus need to be validated? Did Jesus question, like, I need Peter to tell me he loves me? No. Jesus came in Peter's rejection, asking him this question so Peter can answer and hear his heart. Because I don't know about you, but when you've failed or like when I've failed and I've been like, like man, I, Lord, I can't believe I did this. Sometimes I just need to hear the words that are true in my heart. Yes, Lord, I love you. I am so sorry. I love you. Feed my sheep. And some of you just need to have that freedom of that guilt. And so it's real simple. Church in Ephesus, stop. Because if you don't, your light lampstand's going to be removed. It can go out. He's coming and giving us a shout. It's like, hey, remember, repent, do it again. I love you. I'm not here to condemn you or to guilt you. I'm here to prune you and to move you closer. Because there's so much at stake. As a kingdom of light coming into the kingdom of darkness, we are to help and come alongside the move of the Holy Spirit to rescue those who are lost and trapped in deception and sin and death. So as we take communion, let this be a time of reflection for you. Remember what he has done. 